Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, author, expert on a fella named Gene Smith, who we're going to learn all about, Sam Stevenson. Sam, thanks for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Sam, your life, to a large extent, has been devoted to this fellow, Gene Smith, W. Eugene Smith. Who's Gene Smith? Well, he made his name as a combat photographer in World War II. And then he went on to be a Life magazine photo essayist from the war mm -hmm. until he left in early 1955. Um, if you Googled him, you'd often see the phrase, the master of the photographic essay or the father of the photographic essay. He was a pioneer in creating visual stories, uh, which back before television was the primary way that people received their imagery were in uh, weekly or monthly magazine stories. And Life magazine, of course, was the powerhouse of that model. There'll never be another commercial magazine with the circulation that Life had at its, at its heyday, at its pinnacle. And Smith was one of their star photographers. I've looked at some of his images, and he's got that gritty, real, stark, high contrast kind of photography. It, it, it wasn't perfumed. It didn't pull any punches. You saw the real thing. Yeah, he called himself a photojournalist mm -hmm. from until he died. And I believe he was kind of riddled by this tension between journalism and art. Huh. And so he um, was always looking for gritty things, and sometimes if they weren't there, he would insert them into the, into the picture. How did you get interested in this fellow? Well, it started in 1997 when I was working at an independent bookstore in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, I was fascinated by the city of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. um, that's a long story, but and, and Pittsburgh remains one of my real serious interests uh, uh, even today. The home of Andy Warhol. Yeah, it's a <laughs> it's an amazing city. There's really nothing like it in in the U.S. The writer Brendan Gill wrote in the New Yorker that if Pittsburgh were located in the heart of Europe, people would travel thousands of miles to see it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a mountainous city, and it also was America's primary industrial city. It was the largest producer of steel in the world. At one right. point, the city produced something like two-thirds of the world's steel, which is, you know, incredible. So I was interested in Pittsburgh, and I was interested in writing my own book on Pittsburgh, and I stumbled upon a reference to Eugene Smith's um, unfinished Pittsburgh project from the 1950s. Smith went to Pittsburgh in 1955 for a three-week assignment and ended up staying for four years and made 22,000 photos in the city. And he never finished the project. It was one of the most ambitious projects in American photo history. Um, and it kind of collapsed under the weight of his 
impossible ambition. So my what I did was um, I tried to pick up the pieces of his failed Pittsburgh project. So my first project was a little, uh, you know, what I thought was a fairly benign magazine article about Smith's Pittsburgh project um, in 1997. It's for a magazine called Double Take. And here I am today, 20 years later, more than 20 years later, and I'm just finishing uh, all of that work. When you hear about his collections of photographs, you hear about tens of thousands of exposures for this project or that project. He must have been obsessed. And then you became obsessed with him in a way, don't you think? Well, I definitely, uh, over the years... Uh, have been accused of channeling Smith's obsessions. I was in Japan in 2011, walking in Smith's footsteps in Japan for 30 days, and there were meeting people that he knew there. He he lived there, or he went there for uh, several major uh, photographic projects, and there were people there many people there who remember him mm-hmm. and one of them actually was calling me a ghost of wow gene smith so yeah that connection between his obsession and mine has been drawn uh numerous times before i would argue that it's not true <laughs> well i'll tell you something there's a new york magazine quote about you and it reads every obsessive deserves his own boswell and w eugene smith has his in Sam Stevenson. The difference is that, I mean, I was I was really drawn to Smith by what he did, not really who he was. So it was his content. It was uh, this massive body of work that he created in Pittsburgh in the 1950s. And then it was an even larger body of work that he created in this dilapidated loft in New York City in the late 50s and early 1960s. Uh, photographs and tapes from this loft. So it was really the content of what he did more than who he was. Yeah. You know, that I was really fascinated by. And you Um, came upon this collection of audio tapes and photographic images done in that loft because, in fact, you should maybe give us a little background. He essentially was living out in the country with a family his own family, and then just chucked it all away and moved to a sort of a dingy loft in Manhattan. He was uh, in the middle of this Pittsburgh obsession. Yeah. And um, so what what happened is in 1955, he quit Life magazine, where he had been highly successful uh, for more than a decade, um, beginning in World War II and then extending for 10 years and really becoming uh, an icon of, of photography at Life magazine, and they had a massive audience. And um, and so he made a lot of money. He was very highly paid, uh, had a big expense account. Um, he gave all of that up because he was not happy with the artistic limitations that he felt at the magazine. He felt like the editors were not giving him enough artistic freedom. So he finally quit life in early 1955, and his first freelance assignment was to go to Pittsburgh and make 100 scripted photographs for a book commemorating Pittsburgh's bicentennial. And it exploded into a four-year project. He got two successive Guggenheim grants, which is very rare. 
And it's like winning the lotto. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it's just extraordinarily rare that they give the grant to somebody two years in a row. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he made twenty two thousand photos in Pittsburgh, and so he was he was also at the peak of him, of his life physically and artistically. He was in his late thirties. Um, he had a wife and four kids living out in Croton on Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a really big house. And they also had a live-in housekeeper and her daughter living in the house. And they had a live-in darkroom assistant. So there were, uh, let's see, there were like five adults and five kids living in this one house. And he was having trouble finishing the Pittsburgh project. It's just the ambitions kept going up and up and up. He was comparing himself to James Joyce and Beethoven and Rembrandt. And, you know, he was really trying to create a photographic work that, was that measured up to people like that to creators like that and it, and it just was impossible and, and he was also um, addicted to alcohol and addicted to amphetamines and um, and so these kind of cycles of highs and lows he was also probably almost certainly bipolar hmm. so he had these cycles of five days without sleeping um, just working and then he would crash and it just was a, a way of life that wasn't conducive to being a, in a family home right so he he left in 1957 and moved into this dilapidated building on 6th Avenue and 28th Street in New York City the old wholesale flower district and it just so happened to be that building was an after-hours haven of jazz musicians uh-huh. and uh, hundreds of jazz musicians and some classical musicians as well really and well-known uh, guys yeah some people like Thelonious Monk um, Chick Corea Steve Reich the classical composer ah. uh, went there as well as uh, very obscure figures as well and um, so he moved into this loft which was much more conducive to his habits um, the late nights uh, the the neighborhood was zoned commercial, so it was actually illegal to live there. Right. So there was nobody around to complain about noise in the middle of the night. So it was kind of perfect for for Smith. It wasn't a, a, a commercial enterprise where they uh, charged admission to come in and hear them. They were just getting together to play. Yeah, yeah, or rehearse. Yeah, they were they were getting ready. The musicians were all there to to jam. The analogy often made is to a playground basketball court. So some days Michael Jordan would show up. Some mm-hmm. days it would just be five people from the neighborhood and everything in between. You discovered all of his uh, methods of recording this this fantastical jazz center. You found about 40,000 photographic images you found about 1700 hours of tapes audio tapes what did you do with all that stuff well i was working on uh i was working on the pittsburgh project when i found in the back of his photography archive at the university of arizona in tucson i found these boxes full of tapes uh, reel-to-reel tapes, and they'd been in the same boxes since the archive was created back in the 1970s. No kidding. And uh, and I was just curious about them, you know, and I um, started picking through them on one of my trips out there, and I just noticed these names like Thelonious Monk on there and other Zoot Sims and Bill Evans and other names, Art Farmer. And 
Uh, and so I just became curious about those tapes, and no one had ever heard them before because the University of Arizona had the rightful policy that the tapes needed to be properly preserved before uh-huh. they were um, played back. Because running them through a machine could degrade them. Could damage them, yeah. yeah. And that was the right policy. But it made it daunting because it meant we had to raise a lot of money to preserve those tapes before we could listen to them. And nobody knew, nobody ever heard them. So the the only thing, the only information we had to go by was what Smith had jotted on the labels and his photographs. And we could see people like Thelonious Monk and others, and we could read their names in the labels. But there were there was there were real questions about the sound quality, uh-huh. you know, and whether and the reputation of the tapes was not very good. When when Smith made that move, when he quit life and moved into this loft and was trying to create a photographic essay in Pittsburgh that he compared to Beethoven, you know, and and people like that, the powers that be or the the people who had control over the photography world which was a very small number of people in New York back then, and it's still small now, but back then it was probably like eight people, literally. You know, the the top editor, the people who had real hiring power in photography, and they all thought he'd lost his mind. So For throwing away his career. For throwing away his career, throwing away his income, putting his family uh, in peril, which mm. is not a happy part of this story. He, uh-huh. he definitely put his family at peril. And then he started making all these tapes, you know. So people thought, why is this guy who's so gifted at one thing, which is photography, why is he suddenly using all of his time and resources to make all these tapes? And he he had the building wired from the sidewalk up to the fifth floor. He wired the the stairwell. He wired the fire escape. I mean, he he was recording great jazz jam sessions, but he was also recording street noise, people walking up and down the stairs, things off radio and TV, random conversations. He would, he'd would he have eight hours of just, uh, like, room noise. In a sense, he, he lost his mind? Well, uh, you, you'd have to say that if someone did that now, you know, that you knew in your neighborhood, or that you'd probably reach that conclusion. You know, people that do something seminal often are given that sort of description. And what First he, they laugh. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he. I mean, it, it's it's hard to really imagine where that would happen. Like, if you if you were, if you're going to say, over the next five years, let's make one thousand seven hundred reels of tape, which <laughs> which actually ends up being about forty five hundred hours. Yeah. Um, where would you do that? You know, where what would you what building would you wire, and where would you make this this number of tapes and. And, and whoever did that, you'd have to say, was, was a little bit nuts. But what they would achieve if they did it 50 years from now would be really valuable. Yeah. You know, it'd, be, it'd, be some, it'd be sounds of life here in Bloomington or wherever it was. A that, giant snapshot of the moment. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, doesn't, it just so happens there were jazz musicians in this building. If they'd been shooting pool or playing cards or working at a, you know, grocery store or yeah. or working at a radio station or wherever you know it, it doesn't matter where it was it would give you you'd have a record of life that doesn't happen you know it's like he recorded life that normally doesn't get recorded except by novelists and playwrights and right. pe- you know people uh, that work in fiction 
looking through a lot of his images, it looked like he leaned on the sill of his window and from ever how how high up uh, do you recall uh, well he he was his primary space was on the fourth floor uh-huh and the window that he shot out of was on the fourth floor yeah, yeah. and so he took all of these strange angle shots uh, from above like a bird yeah and with beautiful shadows and contrasts lovely stuff guys rock walking across sort of iced up pavement Neat stuff. Art. Yeah, he, he photographed. So in addition to photographing the jazz musicians inside the building, he photographed an equal number. Uh, he, he exposed an equal number of uh, negatives through the window of life in the neighborhood. And again, that's just really invaluable because he, he documented that corner from yeah. that one vantage point uh, in a way I often said... Um, uh, he was like a biologist studying a half acre, you yeah. know, of, of forest. So now you've got all of this recording, photographic recording and audio recording. It needs to be preserved. Costs money. You don't have that kind of money. Right. And that's one of the reasons why this project wasn't done for many years. So I got really lucky. I um, In 1999... I published an article about this building in New York City in Double Take Magazine, mm -hmm. and it came out in the fall of 1999, and it was, uh, it was uh, what I'd interviewed 25 or 30 people at that point, and I looked at Smith's photographs, but I had not heard the tapes because they, were, they still needed to be preserved. So I wrote an article about it that got a lot of attention. Um, it was covered on CBS Sunday Morning. I was on that show. And in Chicago, on that Sunday morning, there was a wealthy man named David Logan on his, he, he said later, he was on his treadmill uh, watching CBS Sunday morning as he did every Sunday. And there was this story about my article with me. And so he went and found the, the magazine, read it. And then a few weeks later, I get this call out of the blue. And um, David Logan said, you know, I read your article. I saw your spot on TV. Uh, what can we do to help? No kidding. That was an angel. I mean, that just does not happen. You know, it's like I'd need that to happen actually now, you know, to <laughs> fund some of my work right now. Right. And they, they stuck with us for the whole project. And they it wasn't the only funding. that They were they required that um, we get matching funds. I was working at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University at the time. Uh -huh. And they pro they provided basically a one to one uh, funding, and and I raised uh, a lot uh, you know money to match what they gave. One of the problems with archives is space, you know, mm -hmm. and um, and if you have to have a hard copy of everything, you just you better have a big building, you know. And <laughs> so we're and you know we're running out of land, you know. You are still in possession of those original tapes. No, so the original tapes. Uh, the first thing that had to be done was they had to be cleaned because uh -huh. they, they were covered in dust and mold to some degree. Huh. Um, so the first thing was we, we cleaned the tapes or we had them clean. We, there were, you know, expert, the leading experts and people who know what, people who know what they're, they're doing. doing. Yeah. And very expensive. Um, but very good at what they do. They cleaned the tapes and then they, then they made the recordings. The originals all went back into climate controlled storage in refrigerated storage we actually had to buy 
refrigeration for the original reels. One one of the things that one of the lucky parts of this story is that the original reels were in a photography archive in at the University of Arizona. So they were climate controlled, even they weren't they weren't refrigerated, but they were in a climate controlled building with low humidity since the seventies and we were very lucky or everybody's lucky about that because the original reels are actually in good shape. Mm-hmm. The sound so if anybody wanted to make you know, some kind of a box set or something, you could go back to the original reel in, in the refrigerator out in Tucson and use the original reel rather than the analog or digital preservation master. And they're still under the control of the University of Arizona then. That's right. Yeah. And, uh-huh. the, and the Eugene Smith estate. Now, when you talk about the photographs, are you talking about actual prints or are you talking about negatives or both? Well, when I when I say that Smith made forty four thousand photographs inside this building in New York, um, I'm talking about negatives and every, uh-huh. everything. Yeah, they, he didn't make. I think he only printed about five thousand of the yeah forty some thousand, um, and all, almost all those are in five by seven form. Very few were in larger sizes. Uh huh. Eventually, there's the Jazz Loft project. Yeah. So the Jazz Loft project was basically, uh, it had three prongs. One was Smith's photographs. Yeah. One was Smith's tapes. And then the third prong were interviews with surviving um, musicians and other participants in that scene. So does that, this mean you had to go out and get these? People? Yes. I, I, in, in, over the years, I've interviewed more than 500 people from from this work. And... Uh, and and for me that was the real pleasure of the work i mean it was the uh if someone you know if i were to be called obsessive or or addicted or whatever as people have said <clears throat> to this work it was to the interviews mm-hmm. definitely i mean i to be able to go in someone's home and listen to them tell their story uh is an incredible privilege that i uh really appreciate and and enjoy were they surprised to find out yeah. that these things still existed absolutely yeah almost nobody knew that these tapes existed almost none of the musicians very few um knew about it and some of them weren't happy i mean they're like uh steve reich the great uh minimalist composer right he was highly unhappy to hear that Smith had taped uh, a string quartet of his back when he was in his early 20s. Yeah. And he had a, he brought a string quartet over to the loft and had them rehearse this piece uh, that he had written as a student at Juilliard. And uh, and Smith has a tape of it. And uh, and he told me, Steve said, I forbid you to ever play this in public. He said that to you? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And uh, so I've, I've, you know. Did I've, you ask him why? Well, he thinks it's an immature student piece, yeah. you know, and he's a very exacting artist. Right. Uh, so he doesn't want him his work sort of presented like that. Yeah. Um, uh, to drop a name, David Harrington of the Cronus Quartet, the leader of the Cronus Quartet, when he when I told him about this, he was like, "Oh my gosh, we have to play that," you know. We Kronos would will, will love to play one of Steve Reich's earliest. They'd had a collaboration for 30 years. You yeah. Know? But even he couldn't convince Steve. He's known him for a long time, and they've worked together. 
he was not able to convince. So you were as good as your word. <laughs> yeah, we still haven't played it. I mean, you know, we're not. But gonna, you've heard it. Oh yeah, I've heard okay. it quite often, and um, you know, fifty years from now, you know, that'll get out. I mean, it's it it'll one day get out, but you know, but I, I understand. I mean, Eugene Smith wouldn't have liked it if people were looking at his negatives and looking at his contact sheets and things like that. You know. Yeah. So I, I totally understand where where Reich is coming from. Of course, but for the the thing is 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 for the purpose of pedagogy, it's very good and worthwhile to learn that someone's not always iconic. You know, I mean the the history is told from the point of view of what's recorded. Mistakes are made. Yeah, you learn from your mistakes. One of my favorite authors, like many, Mark Twain. He wrote beautiful, fantastic, remarkable stuff. He also wrote junk. Yeah. And it's interesting to read the junk, too. It really is. And it, it educate. I mean, students are not served well if the only thing you ever see is the greatest. Right. I mean, it's a hard, it's a, it's a daunting way to do it. Yeah. You know, but then um, there's ego. Yeah. You know, and pride yeah. in what you produce. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I understand that. But it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a flaw in, in our education process, especially in the arts, that there's not as much access to the process. And that's something that Smith recorded on these tapes. I mean, you have Monk rehearsing song, you know, take after 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 take on these tapes and he's making his musicians go do this over and over and over and you realize how much work goes into this you know this isn't just some magical stuff that comes out of their heads i mean because that's what we think that, we think that these guys are talented they know what they're doing they know you know their scales and their chords they just do it right exactly but it isn't no there's i mean there's been many hours of documentaries made that make that leave you with the impression of just that you know that it's some kind of magical voodoo that just yeah. comes out of you know uh these inspired people and it, you don't get to see the amount of work that goes into it and that and smith's tapes do that when you were in the process of gathering your funding and you were reproducing the tapes and so forth what was your ultimate goal uh how were you going to let the world know about this Oh, I didn't know. I mean, I had I had no idea. I was just um, the first thing we had to do was listen to the tapes and figure out what's on them. Yeah. Once we got a handle on it, then I just started trying to find the best partners, um, which is something I'm always inclined to do. And I ended up with a team of great partners, WNYC in New York. Uh, the public radio station, the New York Public Library, um, Alfred A. Knopf was a publisher, and uh, uh, and there was a, a traveling exhibition. Mm -hmm. um, um, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke was where I was based during during that time, and uh, so I just was trying to find the best ways to get it out there. Sam Stevenson, the author of Gene Smith's Sink. Thank you for being on Big Talk. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.